1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to pick up in verse 7. As we continue a study, if you're new with us this morning or visiting with us this morning, we've been going through a study of the book of 1 Peter, written by the Apostle Peter, with instructions on how to navigate a culture that doesn't want you there. You know, we've called it the outsiders living Christian life in a resistant culture. And Peter has revealed to us a lot of things up to this point, but I, I really believe, like we talked about last week, we're getting more and more into what it requires and calls us to do as Christians this morning. And so we're going to read this text. I'm going to pray and ask God to just reveal to us whatever truth it is He has for us as individuals and us as a collective community here this morning. But we're going to read together in verses 7 through 11. And then we'll get into it this morning. Starting in verse 7. It says, The end of all things is out at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank You again. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for this time that you've given us. Lord, open our hearts, open our minds to see and to, to experience what it is you have for us. God, maybe we've known you our whole lives. God, maybe we question you. Maybe we have doubts this morning. God, maybe we have shame and guilt that are keeping us from stepping into the spaces you've called us to. Father God, I pray that we would see, just like in Peter's day, the people that you are talking to today are people who are in desperate need of something, who are broken, who are feel fearful, who are doubting, maybe who are even angry at you. Father God, let us come before you this morning. Let us lay down whatever we've come in with, God, and hear from you this morning. Lord, we love you, thank you, and praise you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So church, I, I want to get right into it here this morning. But, you know, last week we talked about that the subtitle last week was spiritual defense, where we talked about uh, uh, when we were in First Peter the last time, two weeks ago, when we talked about being ready to make a defense for the faith and the hope that we hold on to. And, and that required something active from us, that defense is an active thing too. Defense is not passive. Defense is not something that we just sit back and allow to happen. Defense is an active thing. And so this week, if I had to subtitle it something, it would be spiritual offense. Spiritual offense is what I believe Peter is really getting into this morning. I believe there's two mindsets, two ways of living in spiritual offense that we can see from these verses that Peter is calling us to. As Christians who navigate a culture and how we've moved from chapter 1, where we are now in chapter 4, to this place where he has called us to be taking active steps of participation in the action of what God has put us, the place God has put us in, and the, the circles of influence that we are living in, whether it's in the local church, whether it's in the workplace that you go to, or the school that you attend, 
that God has called us to active steps of obedience in last time being spiritual defense, this week a level of spiritual offense that God has called us to. And so there's two things this morning that I want us to see. You know how I like to go in twos. And so we have two things this morning that I want us to see that I believe Peter is calling us to. And the first thing is this, that he's calling us to live like there is no tomorrow. Live like there is no tomorrow. Now, I'm not saying that God has called us to a YOLO mindset where we bungee, you know, we jump off of bridges, bungee jump off bridges. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about YOLO, but what I'm talking about. And I love how Peter starts this section because I feel like this is a mindset that a lot of us get into when we think about the world or we think about what we do, we're doing. And, you know, I, you hear people say all the time, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Like that's how we feel, right? Most of the time where Peter starts of all things is at hand. Like how many times have you thought in your mind, it's all falling apart, right? The world is crazy, right? Like everything's just a mess. Like what am I doing? Like I, like I feel like for a lot of us, this might be a place where we find ourselves like the end is now. Like the end is near. Like we feel like that person on the side of the street with the, with the cardboard sign that says the end is nigh, right? Like it's happening. And for a lot of us, that's, that's the mindset, and I believe that it's not far off of what Peter's calling us to right here. Now, a lot of people would look at that and would say, well, the apostles were wrong. I mean, this is thousands of years ago, and, and, and that they run, you know, in 64 AD, Peter writes this, and we're in 2022 at this point. So, obviously, they were wrong. But if we know anything about the Bible and anything about how the narrative of the Bible is written, especially in the New Testament, when they begin sharing the gospel... Even when Jesus comes around, there's this language of urgency. There's this language of imminence. When they're saying that the end is near, they're not saying the end is tomorrow. And listen, any televangelist or preacher or teacher you see on TV or the internet that tells you the end is going to happen in February of 2026, so you better be ready or this or that, and then, then they say, well, something changed and so it moves to another year. Listen, they're not worth listening to and they're always going to be wrong. No one's ever going to guess it. That's not the point. The point isn't to know when the end is going to happen. The point is to live now like the end could happen any time. It's not meant to guess, you know, but we love that. Like, we want to know. Like, we want to know the end is near. We want to know, like, when that time frame is. So I can, because we believe within our hearts and minds that if I knew the end was coming, that I would live differently now. But in, in a lot of ways, that's what Peter's calling us to. Is he's calling us to this mindset that lives in a sense of urgency. And the, all the New Testament writers, they wrote with this language of eminence. Like, he's coming the end is near. The coming of Christ, the revelation. I love how revelation ends where John writes, come Lord Jesus, come. There's this language of need. There's this language of anticipation and expectation of the coming of Jesus in this, this language of eminence. And so Peter's not wrong when he says the end is near. And, and we can know that because Peter was present in Acts chapter 1 verse 6. We'll have that on the screen. In Acts chapter 1 verse 6... Whenever Peter uh, is present, when Jesus is speaking before the ascension, Peter, uh, Jesus says this, he says, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. He says, listen, and Peter knew this when he wrote in 1 Peter. He knew that, that he's not going to know. We're not meant to know. That's not the point. But the point is to live as if it is tomorrow. The point is to live as if there's an urgency or an imminence to his return. 
And so when we move into this space of spiritual offense, when we as Christians are called to be actively participating in the world that we live in, he tells us to live as if there is no tomorrow. You know, you know those people. You know, there are people maybe that you know or that you've known that they've had limited life expectancy. You know, you react in two ways. You give up or you live every day, enjoy everything, savor every bite, every relationship, every moment of time with family. You savor it, but you participate in it, right? That's what he's called us to. He's called us to participation. He's called us to be mindful. And so he moves on. You know, uh, for us to be living in this state of urgency. James 5.8 kind of speaks to this also. He says, you also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. I love, James kind of gives us both ends of that. He says, be patient, but establish your hearts in a way that the coming of the Lord is at hand. So being ready, but being patient, kind of the already, but not yet, that we talk about a lot in the context of the Bible. And so when he says here, when he says here that the end is at hand, and anytime the Bible talks about the end, or the coming end, or anything like that. It's not so much a finality that the focus is right there, but it's a consummation. It's a completion. It's that God is doing, that a result is attained. A realization is happening. And so this is that for us as Christians, this is what we're moving towards. We're not moving towards a finite end. We're moving towards a, 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 an attained realization or a re retained goal, something that we are accomplishing. And so, you know, he's calling us to be like this. And then he says in verse 7, uh, a common usage of language here, he says in verse 7, therefore... Sorry, wrong verse, uh, wrong, wrong section. Therefore, in verse 7, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Remember, so he's responding to what he said before. He said, therefore, because the end is near, he begins to lay out some things. He begins to lay out some things for us. You know, in this mindset of living like there's no tomorrow. And so he says, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. And so this word uh, or this, this phrase, self-controlled and sober-minded, it can also be translated. Maybe if you have another type of translation of the Bible, may say it like this. To be serious and watchful. To be serious and watchful. And what it implies is, and the Bible speaks to this several other times, is the Bible right here is implying that there is a way at which we can be swept away in the midst of, you know, when Peter's writing to people, they're under persecution. They're under a lot of uh, scrutiny. People hate them. People don't want them in the community. Nero, the Caesar at the time, has accused them of, of setting fire to a large portion of Rome. And they're getting the blame for that. And so what Peter's telling them here, he says, therefore, be serious and watchful. He says, and, and he's implying for them not to be swept away by emotions and passions, but wanting them to maintain an eternal mindset, an eternal perspective on their lives. That don't get swept away by the fears of what you're experiencing. Don't get swept away by the doubts that you have, but keep a perspective that focuses on the eternality of who you are in Jesus Christ. And part of that is self-control, keeping a hold of our emotions, keeping a hold of what God has called us to. You know, when we live in a world that would tell us that our, we, we, the less we, have, we let 
we let go, the more we let go, the better off we'll be. But as Christians, we're taught that at our nature, that we are broken, that at our nature, our flesh, even as Christians, our flesh desires what is wrong for us. And so when the Bible calls us to self-control, it's asking us, telling us to be mindful and contain these things that are trying to pull us away from God. And so, you know, Proverbs 25, 28, Solomon writes this. He says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. So there's a sense of spiritual and even physical vulnerability that we enter into when we neglect to be mindful of self-control, controlling our passions, controlling our desires, controlling those things that especially in the midst of, of difficulties when things are pressing in around us that we may grasp for because we need some type of comfort or some type of direction in our life. Self-control. And then he says sober-minded, or another way to say sober-minded would be uh, clear-minded. Because our minds, and we've talked about this before, when we're trying to be on the spiritual offense, our minds can play a huge part in that. Because a mind victimized by emotion, a mind victimized by passions, out of control, knocked out of balance by worldly loss or by worldly pursuits, is a mind that cannot experience the fullness of holy communion with God. Cannot experience the fullness of what God has for us if our minds are saturated and clouded and cluttered with lesser things. And so for us, when we try and step into these spaces of self-control, what we're doing is decluttering our mind. We're, we're filtering what comes in to allow us to fully experience what God has for us. Because if we don't, if we don't establish a sense of self-control about what we do, what we say, what we eat, what we watch, I mean, even on the, those very physical things, those things affect our spirituality, then what it does is it begins to clutter our mind, it begins to cloud our mind in a way that victimizes us by our emotions and our passions and the things that we want, and it keeps us from experiencing the fullness of who God is. And so for a lot of us as Christians, that's where we may be today. Maybe you're there today. Maybe you feel as if you can't fully focus and experience the fullness of who God is because you're not clear-minded. Because they're, they're, I mean, be honest. If we, if we take times, and I've lived through seasons in my life where I've experienced this, where my mind cannot think about God. Like, have you ever been like that? Like, you literally feel like you, you don't have space for God in your mind. Because maybe you're too busy, maybe you're too consumed by other things, maybe you're too dependent on other things. You know, these things keep us from living today as if Christ is coming tomorrow. Because we're living for what we have in front of us. Romans 13, 12 says, The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And even these verses in 1 Peter 4 are kind of referencing back to verses in 1 Peter 1. And 1 Peter 1, 13 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded or clear-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. So, making in the spiritual offense, setting our mind actively on something other than the, the lesser things that are put around us. And so in this verse in 1 Peter 1.13, he says to set your mind fully on the grace that will be revealed to you. The grace of who Jesus is. You know, and that's what Sunday morning is really about. 
Sunday morning is resetting our minds on the grace of Jesus Christ. Sunday morning is getting back, you know, and, and a lot of people say, well, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Absolutely. Going to church is not what makes you a Christian. But what Christians do is they gather together in a community of faith to worship Jesus and to, to share his work. That's, that's what Christians do, but it doesn't make you a Christian to be here. What makes you a Christian is that you have put your faith in Jesus, dying on the cross and bearing your sin and shame and being washed clean by his blood being spilled on your behalf so that you don't have to. And believing that with all your heart that you need that. But what I really believe what's happening here, what, Paul, uh, what Peter is saying here is even more or less kind of like a specific prayer. You know, therefore being sober-minded with self-control that it's a specific prayer for the days to come. And I believe that prayer speaks to two things, strength and direction. Strength and direction. As we live in spiritual offense, that Peter is calling us to strength and direction. Prayers for strength and direction. Self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Because there is a specific job, there is a very vital, important job that prayer plays in the spiritual offense that we set out. Whether that's And when we talk about spiritual offense, we're talking about the growth and development of the kingdom of God within the context of my family, as I disciple and raise my children, as I uh, navigate a complementary relationship with my wife, as I navigate the lives of, of the people that I work with, the people you work with, the schools that you go to as you students, those type of things that you are called to and we have an opportunity to in, in interact in a spiritual offensive. And, Luke, and Jesus talks about this in Luke 21 and in uh, a, a, a very, I feel very unique passage that kind of references to this a little bit or kind of speaks to this a little bit as Jesus is saying this about the times to come. He says, but stay awake at all times. And so he's talking to them about being clear-minded, sober-minded, and self-control, focused on the spiritual offensive task that God had called them to. And so Jesus says in Luke 21, 36, he says, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Because that's where we want to be as Christians. We want to be standing before the Son of Man. And so what he says, he says, stay awake, stay clear-headed, stay sober-minded so that you are prepared. You have the strength to take a spiritual offensive in the direction at which God is calling you to. And so he's praying. He prays here for the strength that they would be strong as so that they would not be ruined spiritually or morally by the end-time stressors. You know, that's when Peter writes here, says the end is near, is because he understands that even though the end isn't tomorrow, you're in the midst of end time stress. Today, we are in the midst of end time stress. When we talk about being the outsiders, Christians living in a resistant culture, we are living in end time stress. And in the midst of end time stress, we as people sometimes can begin to reach out and allow ourselves to be morally or spiritually compromised because we don't want to be the bad guy or we don't want to hurt people's feelings or we don't want to look different or we don't want to say something politically incorrect based off of what the culture has deemed politically correct because our world views things differently than we do and so what does Jesus call us to do and then right before this he says in Luke 21 34 I love this verse he says this he says but watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life 
And so what he's basically laid out, he says, be watchful for yourselves that your heart doesn't get too invested in the things that you can actively participate in the midst of this world. He says, don't get consumed by lesser things. Don't get consumed by the lesser uh, gifts that are given on this world. But he says, he says, don't be uh, consumed. Don't be weighed down with these things. Dissipation with drunkenness and cares of this life. And he says this, he says, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap and I believe this is where and and I love this language that he uses here suddenly like a trap because a lot of us I believe and I I, I've found myself in these spaces where you you realize you're in the trap and you didn't even know you got there right like how many times have you been in this place where You look at where you are spiritually or in the leadership of your home or in navigating the life, your life as a Christian. And you look at where you are and you're so dissatisfied about where you are and you try to think, how did I even get here? It's because those moments, they happen suddenly. They happen without us even knowing it. They happen without us even realizing it sometimes. But what it starts with is it starts with things within our hearts, and within our mindsets, where we get consumed by what he says there in that third line, cares of this life. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't care about our families. It doesn't mean we don't care about our jobs. It doesn't mean we don't care about the things that our families are participating in. But it means that those things don't begin weighing us down, leading us into this place where we're trapped by them. It's one thing to love something. It's another thing to be enslaved by something. It's one thing to love something, but it's another thing to worship it as the God of our life or the thing that we're invested in more than anything else. And so what Peter is calling us to do is he's calling us to be led by this place that what we need is strength to escape from the trap of the world's pressure as the end draws near. And so he tells us, for us as Christians, to live like there is no tomorrow. Live like Christ will be here tomorrow. And then the second and last thing is this. To live like you've got it all to give. Live like you've got it all to give. And so in verse 8, he begins to lay out some things. The spiritual offensive that we participate in as Christians. Some things that we can do. And so in verse 8, he says this. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins you know maybe you've heard this verse said a lot and sometimes I've heard it said out of context but I really believe this is a beautiful pivot point in this section in this story as Peter is speaking to Christians because he's telling them you know and the biblical language kind of echoes this on and on and on again this idea of above all else above all things that you do love You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and above all, love your neighbor as yourself. This above all, you know, this this language that just accents this particular kind of love. And remember the biblical, there are several types of biblical love. Uh, The the, the original languages had a, a lot better definition for love itself, but this particular love is agape love. The greatest kind of love. The love that the Bible tells us in 1 John is the very essence of who God is. That God is love. And this type of love, this agape love, is a love that chooses to love. That is concerned about the object of its love. That it's an active, participatory love that wants good for the object of its love. And so he says, he says, above all, 
above all, above all in the midst of all the pressure, above all in the midst of all the resistance, above all in the midst of all the hate, above all in the midst of all the persecution, love one another. Keep loving one another. This active step that he calls us and other people to, he's called us, it says, a love that chooses love. Let that be the love that defines you as Christians. It's not a compromising love. It's not a love that lets go of the truths of God. This type of love goes in conjunction with the truths of God, goes in conjunction with who he is and what he's called us to do. You know, a lot of times in church, we're afraid to talk about love because we feel like it's empty, because we feel like it's shallow, because we feel like it's worldly, because we feel like it means that we have to embrace and accept every mindset that comes our way. But the biblical love, this love, agape love is so much bigger, so much deeper, so much heavier than those things. It's not an empty love. It's a love that defines who God is. And for Christians to be actively stepping into places of resistance, of persecution as outsiders, it is exactly where God intends for us to be. And in the midst of that, he has called us to keep loving in that way. Because this particular type of love this, 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 this agape love, Colossians 3.14 even talked about it. He says, above all, these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Because what is the greatest thing that we as Christians need in the midst of pressure and persecution and resistance? We need unity. We need unity amongst each other. Now, I'm not talking about one giant worldwide religion. Don't read into it. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying for us as Christians on a general scale, we need unity. And so that's why he calls us to, in the midst of this, he says to keep loving each other. And so when he says to keep loving one another earnestly, another translation may say it like this, fervently. And this word defined means to be stretched or strained. You know, a way to, that this word could be used is almost in a, kind of an illustration describing a runner who is moving at maximum output with strained muscles stretched to his limits. So when the Bible tells us here, above all, to keep loving one another earnestly, it's saying keep loving to the point at which you are at your limits. Push yourself beyond your comforts. Because I don't know about you, and, and you know, I've ran some in my life. I did track for a very short period of time, and I, I, I tried constantly to convince my coach to scratch all my events so that I didn't have to run. But I, if you've ran at any capacity, when you are moving beyond those moments, when you are running trying to obtain something, it hurts. It's stressful. It's tiresome. And so God has called us to, Peter is writing to a group of Christians and he says, above all, in the midst of everything you're going through, love in a way that is almost to your limit, to the point at which it hurts you. You know, but we don't, we don't particularly like that. It's not even necessarily the way at which our culture views love. Our culture views love in a sense, and it's the reason why the gospel doesn't make sense to the culture is because the culture views love as a transactional thing. Like, I'll love you a certain way if you love me a certain way. I'm thankful that God didn't love me that way because I'll never love God as much as God loves me. And so what he's called us to, though, is this mindset that loves till it hurts and loves some more. For us as Christians... 
You know, because when it says that love covers a multitude of sins, it's not talking about my sins. But it's talking about those around us. It's saying, because I'm forgiven, I have the capability to love in a way that hides how I've been sinned against. Hides how I've been hurt. Hides how I've been sinned against. And so, you know, what this is, 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 is us as Christians sharing in the grace that God has given us. By choosing to love, it covers sins of those who have sinned against us. And this love, this type of love, it doesn't keep record of wrongs. It doesn't keep record of what's been done against us. Now, it doesn't mean that we, we, we immediately trust people the same way that we did. You know, and a lot of times when we talk about the forgiveness of God in the midst of our relationships or whatever it might be, it's like, well, so am I just supposed to forgive somebody that's hurt me deeply? Uh, and, and you know that's the thing about it is, is forgiveness isn't earned but trust is and so sometimes there's a navigating situations and relationships where trust needs to be rebuilt but what God has called us to especially in the space of our Christian lives is a mindset a love that is seeking forgiveness that is offering forgiveness. That is sharing of the grace that God has given to us. Because what this type of love is, a love that covers a multitude of sins, is this is a type of love that has a desire of conversion. And this is the type of love that God has called us to. A love that covers a multitude of sins with the intentions of conversion. Because that's how we win the world around us. Is creating space, spaces, not where we say that sin is okay, not that we say that certain things are acceptable when they're not by God's standard, but it's about allowing space for us. Because you can choose agape, you can choose to love someone who doesn't love God. And the hope, the prayer is as we love without the expectation of return, because that's another part of agape love. We love without the expectation of love back. We love till it hurts. The intention is that we're loving for conversion. We're loving to see them come to faith in who Jesus is. We're loving and giving them this, giving of ourselves in this way to see what God can do. Proverbs 10:12 says hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. You know, I love this quote by Wayne Grudem, a systematic theologist. Um, he's written a lot of books. He says this, he says, where love abounds in fellowship of Christians, many small offenses and even some large ones are readily overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion. Every action is liable to misunderstanding and conflicts about to Satan's perverse delight. And I think that's the main thing. That's the main thing within, within kind of communicating this in the midst of a Christian context where love covers a multitude of sins. When we have active love for each other, we don't always think that everyone's out to get us. Maybe you've lived like that. Maybe in church. Maybe in your, in your relationship with your spouse even. That you live as a victim with expectation. You take every word that's said through the perspective of that it's meant to hurt me. Or that they're, they're conniving against me. Or that we lack trust in people. That we believe that if someone's saying something or doing something, that their intentions must be bad. That is a perspective that is not based out of a place of this above all love one another with agape love because it covers a multitude of sins. But otherwise, it's like this. How, how, how Wayne Grudem is saying, he says, if we're lacking that type of love, then everything that we hear from people within the church or people maybe within our family, maybe our spouse or something like that, 
that where that love is lacking, it's every word is viewed with suspicion. Every action is viewed with suspicion. Every action is liable for misunderstanding and conflicts. And you see that happening even within churches. You know, somebody told me one time, I said, I feel like you call out the church a lot. You know, but the thing is, is that the only way to move past things where we do things wrong, even in our personal life, the first thing to move beyond something is to admit that there's a problem. And so I'm never afraid to say where the church has failed. I think that's where the church has failed for years and years as we've sometimes presented things as if we've got it all together. And we don't. The church fails constantly. But it doesn't mean we quit and it doesn't mean that it's not uh, a a reliable source of a a conduit towards who God is. Because the reality is we're just all broken people moving towards a perfect God. We just have to always be pointing people to a perfect God, not pretending like we're a perfect church. But what he's telling us here and what Peter is saying is, listen, if you don't have that love in the midst of you, everything will be suspicious and you'll never be able to trust anyone. You'll never grow as a church. And so for us, he's called us, you know, and, and to give it all, to give that love. And then verse 9, he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And so it's not only to love for conversion, but to share from a heart of giving. To show hospitality is, it is, can be defined like this, loving strangers are being fond of guests. Hospitality is a characteristic, characteristic of a Christian that is vital to evangelism. That if we are being hospitable, and when I say hospitable, that's having guests in our home. That's interacting with people outside of our immediate family, creating space for fellowship. And so maybe we say to ourselves, well, I'm just too busy for that. But the thing we have to challenge ourselves with is if we're too busy for hospitality, we're too busy. If we're too busy to be hospitable to other people, we're too busy. As Christians, it is our responsibility to be hospitable. It is our responsibility to create safe spaces where people can come, where we can have meals with people, where we can have conversation with people, where we can enjoy fellowship with people. And and what that does, when we are hospitable, it puts us in a place of a servant. You know, because if you're waiting for the perfect season of life to be hospitable, you're never going to find it. You're never going to find it. Listen, your house will never be clean enough. The food will never be good enough. The people will never be fun enough or perfect enough. There's never going to be a perfect situation where you feel comfortable to be hospitable. For us as Christians, God says, be hospitable. Create spaces where you can be hospitable and have and share hospitality with people around you. Making space in your life to cater to others. Because that's what being hospitable is. When we are being hospitable to others, it is putting us in the place of a servant to cater to others' needs. And that is what defines the life as a Christian. That is what we are called to do is to cater to others. This Christian life isn't about me. It's not about what makes me comfortable. It's not about what makes me successful. It's not about what makes me feel important. But it's about how I can make someone else feel important. It's about how I can serve someone else. Because that's what Christ did for us, right? Christ left the right hand of God to come and to die a servant's death, a criminal's death. For us. He gave of himself for us. And that's what he has called us to as Christians. That's what we can give of ourselves. 2 Corinthians 5.15 it says, And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Philippians 2.14 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. I think this is very important when we talk about being hospitable. You know, 
He has not called us to invite people to our house and then gripe about them coming, right? Or to gripe about the fact that you have to do all this work to prepare for people to come. And God, he'd say, I'd say, just don't do it. Just don't do it if you're going to complain about it. But he tells us, he says, be hospitable without grumbling because what it does is it puts us in this mindset and we have to fight this because our flesh wants to complain. We are natural complainers. Complaining comes from within us much easier than compliments, right? Complaining is natural. You know, how many times have you been in that kind of that process where you're trying to balance complimentary and complaining and then you're like, you'll say some things and you'll think to yourself, I've literally just spent 30 minutes complaining about something, right? It is so much easier for us to complain. But being in that space, it robs us of opportunities to be hospitable. And then he tells us this in verse 10. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as God's stewards of God's varied graces. And I love that he uses this word. Because what it gives me the opportunity to do this morning is to say, if you don't think you have something to offer God or offer your neighbor, you're wrong. Because what God has given you is he's given you varied graces or common graces, that you have something to offer. Maybe you don't feel like you're a great cook. You know what? Maybe that's not what you have to offer, but you have something. You have your time. You have your home. You have moments. You know, you have, maybe you think to yourself, well, I don't have a lot of money to do these things. Hey, listen, you don't need money to be hospitable. Maybe it's just checking on someone. Maybe it's making it a point to call or text someone every day or every other day or once a week. You know, those people in your life that you know they would benefit from those moments. Just letting people know that you care. Hospitality does not always mean that we have to have mounds and mounds of gifts. But God says, be good stewards of the varied grace. He didn't say the, the specific grace, but the varied graces that He's laid before us. You have graces that God has poured out on your life in some capacity that has given you the ability to share. And so just like we said that the title of this section being to live like you've got it all to give, that God has given you something worth giving to someone else. You know what? And maybe what you have to give is the experience of something else you've went through. You know, maybe it's a difficult situation. Maybe it's some type of loss. Maybe it's some type of uncertainty that you navigated. Maybe in your job or your relationship or with one of your kids... You know, God has even given you experiences to be hospitable to other people. You lean into their life and you say, hey, listen, I've been there. I want to let you know that there's light on the other side of whatever it is you're going through. Every single one of us has been given something. Varied graces to share with the people around us. He has equipped us and provided for us in different ways. Ways Every part is important and each has its job. The responsibility of the believer is to use it for the good of the collective. Use it outside of ourselves. That spiritual offense, putting it to action, putting it to work. Romans 12 verse 6 says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Let us use them. And then he says in verse 11, Whoever speaks... Let him speak. Whoever serves, let him serve. Peter speaks of all our gifts being categorized into two categories, speaking and serving. You know, and 
The thing is, a lot of us believe that if we don't have the right words to say or the right voice to sing, that we don't have any place to, to participate. But he says here, he says, no, some speak, but then some serve. And what they do, the commonality is that they're all done through the strength of God. In verse 11, he says, by the strength God supplies, not only are they from the same source, but they're for the same purpose. And what does he say? says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Listen, it's about God's glory. Because when God is glorified, we are blessed. We experience that through Him, through giving of ourselves, through laying ourselves down before the people that we know and love. And so, what He's called us to, what He has given us is the strength and the equipping provided by God to fulfill the goal of God, which is His glory and our good. And it's all a call for us to step into the spiritual offense. And so, as we finish this morning, and I've gone a little bit, a little bit long this morning, but I want us to finish up with this. And, you know, and instead of singing our last song, I'm just going to ask Landon to come. If you just play for us a little bit, we're going to kind of enter into a space of prayer. Because I think for all of us, there, there's something that's holding us back from a spiritual offensive. Like there's something that's holding us back from participating in the local church, from participating in an active relationship with God, from speaking to our kids, our spouse about who God is or what God's doing. You know, maybe we feel like we have to have all the answers so we don't want to even start. Maybe we feel like our past has been too dirty, that there's no way that I could ever actively participate in that. You know, but what we're doing is we're putting a lot of limitations on God. We're putting a lot of limitations on who God is and who God works with. When he tells us here, he says, he who serves or he who speaks, serves or speaks by the strength that God supplies. Not by yours, not by mine. It's not about me and my strength, but it's about God and his strength and his glory, not my own. So you know what? If you're not a perfect representation of who God is and what God does, that's okay because neither am I. If you're not a perfect representation of the strength and the good and the glory of what God does and who God is, that's okay because neither am I and neither is anyone else, not even that pastor down the street that may look like or act like he is because he's not. None of us are. But God has invited us all to the table the same to participate in the good and the glory of what he's done. And so God has provided us with the means of spiritual offense and he's called us to spiritual control, spiritual self-control physical self-control, sober, clear-mindedness, that we'd have a clear view and vision of who God is and be praying in that, in that sense or that capacity. That we would be compassionate and have care and concern. That we'd be fervently, earnestly seeking and sharing the love, pushing ourselves to the limits of the love that we can even have. That we'd be hospitable, that we'd be teaching and serving in whatever capacity God has given us. And it all has to be grounded and founded in His love. Grounded and founded in this love, this agape love that gives of itself. Because even like this, and I love this verse in 1 Corinthians 3.13. says, if I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. And I love that verse because what it says to us is even if I give of my life 
but it's not from a place of choosing love, of agape love, the love of who God is for my neighbor, for my family, for the lost and dying world around me. It doesn't matter if I die. If I don't die for love's sake, then it's nothing. If I sacrifice, but it's not for the love of who God is and what God's doing in my life and for my family, it means nothing. It's a clanging symbol. It's a screechy gate. It means nothing. But that love, the love that gives away, the love that gives of itself, the love that goes to die, that love is in Jesus. And the only way we can live with that type of love is when we have engaged and embraced with that love for our own lives. We have to believe that God can love us in that way before we can ever start to love anyone else in that way. But too often we don't believe there's any way we could ever be loved in that kind of way. But I want to share with you this and then we're going to pray and we'll be done. That when all is crashing down around us, you know, when Jesus was marching up, going to be crucified for us, all hope seemed lost. The brutality, the hurt, the emotions, the death, all of that surrounding this situation and in the very midst of that, over 2,000 years ago, in the very midst of that, for each and every single one of us, there was something there. It was hope. It was hope that beyond all this, there's something else. It was hope that beyond all the hurt, beyond all the pain, beyond all the disappointment, beyond all the suffering, there's something else. There's an eternity. There's a place. There's a table. And I just, I, I just... That is my favorite thought about what God has called us to. There's a table with seats and the most glorious, endless meal you've ever seen in your life. That God says, I have a place for you at this table. That there's no cover charge. That there's no dress code. That there's no background check. He says, when you enter in through this door, says the debt, the record held against you is nailed to the cross and is cast as far as the east is from the west that is wiped clean. And that every sin you commit from this point forward, it's written on a board that is immediately wiped away. That this love that Christ has for you, it keeps no record anymore. Does that mean that God hasn't called us to faithful steps of obedience? Absolutely, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm telling you is that the only thing keeping you from experiencing the love and the, the direction and strength that God has for you is our belief that God could love us that much. That He would give people. That He died for me just as much 10 years ago as He is right now that He will continue to no matter what happens the Bible tells us the righteous stumble seven times but they get back up and move again so as we kind of move into this time of prayer like I said we won't sing this morning because I've kept you way too long and I'm not going to we're not going to move into that time but I, I want us to I want us to pray together 
wherever you are, whatever you've done, wherever you've been, that you would know that God has invited you into the spiritual offensive and in the midst of that spiritual offensive, that the very power in which we step from is the love, the agape love of God that has given himself for us. And it's from this very love, this very foundation at which we step. We step into a world that doesn't want us here. We step into a culture of resistance. We step into difficult relationships. We step into difficult situations out of this place that God has called us from. So let us pray together. And I want you to pray a very individualistic prayer this morning. God, what is keeping me from participating in the spiritual offensive that you have called us to? What is keeping me from leading my children? What is keeping me from leading my wife? What is keeping me from stepping into a relationship with my spouse, husbands and wives, stepping into a spiritual relationship together? What is keeping us from that? That you would pray, God, help me to see. Help me to see what you're calling me to. Help me to see what you want to do with me. Help me to see that maybe I've journeyed or wandered far away from you you're still waiting for me, that you're still calling me back, that you still have my place at the table. But if you've doubted, you've had fear, you've never put your trust in Jesus, that he could ever love you or forgive you in that way, pray this morning you would know that. That no matter your past, no matter your, your present, God has a spot for you at his table. And he says, come, all who are weary, all who are brokenhearted, come and I will give you rest. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you. God, we thank you for your goodness. God, we thank you for your glory. God, we thank you that in the midst of all these things, God, that you are faithful. God, that you are good. God, that you provide, that you continue to give even when we withhold. God, that you are faithful when we are faithless. Father God, I just ask that whatever it is keeping us from stepping into the spaces that you have for us, Lord, God, that you would begin breaking down those barriers. God, if there's anyone here this morning that has never put their faith in you and who you are and what you do, God, that you would get courage and strength to step out into some unknown spaces, to ask some, some questions, to answer some doubts or some fears that they may have. God, maybe there are some Christians here that feel like they've wandered. Feel like that they can't get back to those places at which they lived once. Father God, I pray you give strength and courage to begin to walk again, to begin again. As the gospel does with us, when your mercies are new every morning, you give us new strengths, daily provisions to step out into the spaces that you've called us to, God. Lord, we're broken people just in desperate need of what you can give us. God, and I pray this morning that there would be nothing that would keep us from living and leading the way that you would have us to go. Lord, again, we just love you. God, we thank you. We just ask you to bless us, bless these families, and bless the work of our hands. Lord, we love you and thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.